because in the <clears throat> most mission fields overseas, the, the Internet is so sketchy that uh, you, you, you go over with great plans to be able to keep the church informed, you know, of what's happening. But uh, Pastor Walt says their Internet is so bad. But what's funny is that their Internet is just enough to send texts. And the last thing you expect to get from them in India is texts. And all of a sudden I get to get, I'm starting to get these texts from, from Pastor Walt. But one came yesterday. He said that uh, it's Sabbath here, he said, and that um, the building is done. So their, uh, their schedule for the next couple of days probably will lighten up just a little bit. And uh, he just wanted to let you know how much uh, they miss us and uh, that they're praying for us. Uh, and... Um, that they'll, they'll be home soon. They're scheduled to be back, I think, late Tuesday night. And if you know Pastor Walt, he probably won't even take a jet lag day. He'll probably be in here Wednesday morning. So, But uh, they, can't, they can't wait to be home. Um, if, if you look on church's Facebook page, they sent us a, a picture of them worshiping in their church last Sabbath and uh, a whole lot of kids sitting there. And um, <clears throat> they have been t- really taken with these kids. They said uh, the kids are so courteous and, and helpful and kind and thoughtful. Uh, Sarah's been blown away by the kids. They're just, they love working with these kids. So uh, he said so far that's, that's kind of the highlight is the kids in this school. Remember they were building three rooms onto this school. So, uh, so they were uh, just wanted to, to keep you updated and, and pray for them to they'll be home soon. Pray that they get back safely. So Kristen... Uh, kind of got me a little bit thinking I, that passage in Isaiah 49 is, is, is powerful, but uh, it begins this way in verse 14. It says, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And I think that everyone has been to a point where they felt that God has forgotten them, either, either forgotten or that we have done something that has offended him so that he's turned his back on us. But he says, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And then he says, can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion of the child of her womb? And then, of course, he, the prophet quotes what Solomon was telling us about us, about living under the sun, saying, even they may. And we know that it can happen. We know what human nature has done to us so that even these may forget. But God says, yet I will not forget you. And then says, see. I've inscribed you in the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders outdo your destroyers, and those who laid you waste go away from you. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather. They come to you. And as I live, says the Lord, you shall put all of them on like an ornament, and like a bride you shall bind them on. The names of the children. All of them will be bound upon us. You shall put them on, he says, because he will call them to mind for us, because he will never forget us, is what that passage says. That's, uh, that's pretty powerful. It's a great place to start, too. Great place to start. Because every year, um, there always appears in major magazines, especially secular magazines, uh, talking about the historical or archaeological accuracy of the Bible. How many back in November saw that, you know, that life and, and, and uh, time and, and, you know, sitting there and uh, just had a picture of Jesus on there. And they talk about the historical Jesus and, and somebody has some idea about the, the, the archaeological evidence or the historical evidence 
of, of the Bible or of the nativity story, of the Jesus story or any of that. And they say that there's no physical evidence to this or no physical evidence to that. And it's true. It's true. Aren't there huge, huge gaps in the information that we have that archaeologists can give us? Huge gaps in the, in the history books. And, of course, we didn't have any other way of recording anything back then. Really, all we have, for the most part, is the Bible. And, and, and I have to tell you, the Bible's not... It was never meant to be a history book, if you will. It was never meant to be a history textbook. The writers of the Bible weren't so much concerned about the facts and the physical evidence that was left behind. They were concerned about telling you who God is and how he treated them, you know. So there's always these huge gaps, huge bits of information that, that, that humans then can speculate on. And you have atheists and agnostics and and believers and non-believers and everybody along the spectrum. And they, we all debate. And, and the question rings out, why isn't there more evidence? Why isn't there? What do you think we'd do with it? You think it would make us more faithful? If we had more evidence? What if they found the ark? Everybody talking about finding the ark of the covenant. What if they find it? What if it is in that little monastery in Ethiopia? What if it is? Will it increase our faith? I would say it would do the opposite. The reason we haven't found the ark, I believe, is that some group somewhere, and it may even be us, you know, it might even be us. I mean, our knowledge of the sanctuary, for us to be able to find the ark, I mean, that would be pretty cool. And, and there would always be a group of people that would end up what? They would end up worshiping it. How easy would it be to make the ark an idol? You know, the movie got it right. It would be an idol. It would be an idol. Or it would be somebody trying to get a hold of it for some source of power or something to be able to oppress somebody else. I think that's why. And plus, if you have all the physical evidence you need, if you have all the scientific and physical evidence right in front of you, then what do you need faith for? Now, I'm not going to argue whether or not faith uh, does not need evidence. I don't believe that faith is blind. In fact, I believe God gives you all the evidence you need in order to have faith. Evidence or evidence in front of you, tangible evidence, does not mean that you have little faith. And I don't believe that faith is not intellectual. I don't, people, I don't believe that people who have faith and base their decisions, their life decisions on faith are stupid because they're ignoring the scientific evidence. That's not the case at all. I've known some pretty stupid people who have faith. I've known some pretty smart people who have faith. I've known some pretty stupid people who don't have faith. And I've known some pretty smart people who don't have faith. Do you see what I'm saying? By the way, I'm one of the stupid people who do have faith. So It's just that I I think we would then put more faith in the human methods that it took to find this out. You know, that it took to discern this. Uh, the, The human... Uh, discipline of archaeology and science and uh, historical interpretation, so forth and so on. I think that, that this is the way that it would become an idol. And it could chip away. It could begin to chip away at what God has done. It could begin to chip away at what faith or at what evidence he has given us for faith. And it would become an idol somewhere along the line. Now, I'm not going to argue with God. If he wants to show us where the ark is, fine. I'll go see it. How many of you would pay money to see the Ark of the Covenant? In a heartbeat. Not a whole lot. I don't have a whole lot, you know, so 
But, but I, you know, I'd, I'd pay to see that, you know, I'd pay to see that. So, I, you know, I've paid money to get into a lot of museums, and, you know, you, you say it's the Ark of the Covenant. I, I want to see that, okay? I also want to be there when they open it. Uh, no, no, only soldiers, you know, so. only Nazis. Anyway. To be able to contribute more to human wisdom. Now, I'm not discounting human wisdom, but human wisdom has a certain way of approaching things, has a certain way of looking at things. And when it comes to human wisdom concerning the mysteries, especially of what we've been talking about the, the last couple of weeks, when we come and we, and we ponder things like this and we, and we look at this season, human wisdom has a way of, of looking at it that the Bible calls what? What, is, what does Paul call the debaters of the age, the ones that are carrying around the human wisdom, the ones that are trying to take these things, these concepts, and make them, you know, make them understandable in human terms? Paul calls them fools. And that the wisdom of the age, that human wisdom, the wisdom of the age, is foolishness. Right? That's what he calls it. Isaiah chapter 9, where, where this, this verse will eventually come from, it talks about the, the difference between human wisdom and what God had in mind for us. See, it says, The yoke of their burden, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So the oppression that God's people were feeling, the yoke of the oppressors, has been broken. You have broken the yoke of the oppressors. A, a, a group that has some sort of physical power or, or strength or advantage over God's people had enslaved them, had enslaved them, and he broke the yoke. You with the prophet here? You broke it, he says. For all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. There you go. Human wisdom. How do you free an oppressed people? How do you free a hostage? Remember we talked about this last week. What does human wisdom say? We need warriors. We need somebody to shed their blood. Probably the oppressors end up getting their blood shed. And their garments, their bloody garments, are trampled, trampled under the boots of the tramping warriors. And then their garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel of the fire. Armies. Mankind breaks yoke by war, by going to war. By human wisdom says if a, a group of strength, okay, of a particular strength is, is, is oppressing a weak people, then how do we liberate them? We put together an army that is stronger than the oppression. We go to war. Human wisdom. Foolishness. Because God says, no, not a war, but a what? A baby. Not a war, but a baby. For unto us, a child has been born. A son for who? Us. A son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders. And he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful. I, you know, I don't think anybody would argue that when you see a baby, you could bring wonderful to mind, right? Wonderful. Yes. Wonderful. Maybe even you can call him a prince. The everlasting part, I don't know. 
We can argue about that. But mighty? Mighty? Mighty! Baby! God says no. This oppression that I will uh, free my people from, it won't be from an army. It won't be from a war. It'll be from this baby. This baby. When did you see your first nativity scene this year? Halloween. That's when I saw it. Home Depot put out their Christmas decorations, and it included a blow-up nativity. Blow-up nativity. I'm sure they've been around before now. This just happens to be the first time that I saw one. Okay. Now, there's nothing wrong with a blow-up nativity. Does anybody have one? I just, I, I I didn't want to. Now that nobody raised their hand, nobody has one. But we have nativity scenes. I, I mean, we, we had a real pretty one. Sharon and JB, you, you did a real pretty one. I'm sorry that the flood destroyed it, but uh, over on the wall. Very simple. It doesn't take much. I guess maybe that's one reason why we see so many of them, too. But, you know, just there, it, it doesn't take much to be able to put up there that invokes an image in people that they know that that's a nativity scene. But I saw my first one. I saw my first one this time, the day after Halloween, like November 1 in Home Depot. You know, and I've often wondered, and I've been wondering this for about 20 years now. I've often wondered, what do what does the world think when all of a sudden it shows up every year, this nativity scene, and they'd be looking, and what I always pictured was that they look and they go, oh, it's that baby again, it's that baby again. There it is. It's the baby again. A child, a baby, God's plan, not man's. The angels must have asked, like we said last week, the angels must have asked, Father, are you kidding me? Really? Really? You're going to go down there with Satan prowling around and you helpless. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? And remember, his, that crack team of commandos wasn't in too good a shape, were they? You know, is that teenage bride going to be able to, that teenage mom, is she going to be able to, to protect you? This poor carpenter. What's going to happen? But the prophecy says this. It says, his authority shall grow what? Shall grow continually and there shall be endless peace. When will the peace end? Endless peace, it says. For the throne of David and his kingdom, he will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. Let me read that right again. His authority shall grow continually. There shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, will accomplish this. Now, is he talking about King David? Can't be talking about King David. By the time that he writes this, David's been dead, I, I want to guess, about 700 years. They know it's not David, but it's a descendant of David. And whenever the might, the, the military might of Israel wants to be brought up, they talk about the throne of David because David was the epitome of might. He was the epitome of mighty king. David was it. Saul has slain his thousands, David his Ten thousands. So this was supposed to call to mind. 
Look how the baby will accomplish it. This is the baby that will accomplish it, not, the, not David, not the military might. This is God's plan, not man's plan. The baby will bring about everlasting peace. Has any war in the history of humanity ever brought everlasting peace? No. At best, it's given us maybe 10 to 15 years. At worst, it's led to more war. But this baby brings about everlasting peace. See, David ascended and kept his throne with might and with glory. He was able to do it with his own might and with the, with the might of the army of Israel. Well, at least that's what Israel believes and thinks. You know, David did have somebody else on his side, right? And as long as he, he consulted with him, as long as he talked with him, then everything worked out okay. The only time David got in trouble is when he did it on his own. But David's the ultimate example of what Israel would call human might. I firmly believe that Israel didn't accept the Messiah because he didn't show up like David. If he'd have walked in and, and, and slew his own Goliath, they would have accepted him in a heartbeat. This is what we believe the Messiah would be. This is him. But for the Creator God to leave the throne and become creation... I don't know. Sounds like a sketchy plan to me. So helpless, so small. A birth that had more animal witnesses than human. It happened in a barn. Well, Bethlehem's version of a barn. It was probably a cave. There was no room at the inn. So the innkeeper said, go stay where? In the stable. What was kept in the stable? Right. I have a nativity scene at home that has more humans in it than animals. That probably was not the case. Probably just those three and a whole bunch of animals. By the way, they didn't eat that night because that manger was the feed trough. So so his, his, his first act as human was to deprive some animals of some food. Now you talk about helpless... Philip Yancey says he could have been stepped on by a mule. That mule, that donkey that carried Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem, what if he decided that he just didn't like being in that cave after that baby was born? There you are. But to become human, to live and breathe as one, to be tempted as one, and to die as one so creation doesn't have to die. It's, it's tough to comment on that. I don't have any in my notes. It's just kind of a space where I was hoping something would happen. But what a statement that makes for you and me. What a statement that makes for humanity. It is an ironic statement, especially for those of us living under the sun. Christmas time brings more thoughts of suicide, depression, episodes of mental breakdown than any other time of year. Ask our uh, mental health professionals about that. Why? Because it has to do with community. It has to do with family. It's a basic human need. We're created that way. 
We were created to be in community. And we can argue about what the structure is of a family and here and there, but we were created to be together. And there are too many people that don't have a place. Their community has been destroyed. And so when it comes time and they see other people celebrating with their communities and with their families, that takes a toll. And this season becomes lonely. And it's supposed to be celebrating the very time where God affirmed the human community by becoming part of it, by interceding in it to save it from its death, to save it from its isolation, to save it from its inability to reach out and to love as they have been loved. It's also, I believe, what church is for. Church should be family for people who don't have families. Church should be family for people who have family. Church should be family, period. But the Christmas story, God becoming man to show us what humanity means to him. He's supposed to teach us. It teaches us what we're really worth. This world teaches and distorts and twists it. Back when I went through college the first time, it's been quite a few years. But, you know, one of the prerequisites, at least in Arizona, and I know it was in California, that one of the, elect, not electives, but the prerequisites, the required classes, are a certain amount of humanities and a couple of English, remember, Comp 101, Comp 102, so forth and so on. Well, one of those humanities courses was psychology. Intro to psychology, or psychology one, as it's called, in college. And the first thing you learn in every psychology class, and I hope it's not the case anymore. I think, I think the field has gone past this. But everybody remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Where did the hierarchy end? Self-realization, self-actualization, actual self. Self, self, self. I don't think that Maslow was wrong. I mean, Maslow was brilliant because that's exactly what human nature needs is to actualize self. And you have to do it in order to survive in a place that is constantly making you defend yourself. You see what I'm saying? I'm not putting him down and I'm not putting it down. But it's not a good thing. Because what does the Bible teach about self? Where does self get us? gets us to the point to where God has to become one of us to save us. But we need to be careful. We need to be careful when we talk about what worms we are. And I, and I, and I would say that we are a worm. David said that we're worms. Job said that we're worms. We're worms, 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 worms. I'm a worm, not a man, David said. And if David is the one saying that, hey, who am I to talk? I ain't going to tell David he's wrong. You know what I'm saying? But we need to be careful. We're sinners, yes. We need a Savior, yes. We're worms, yes. But worthless, hold on a minute. Think of that baby again. Worthless? Uh Uh-uh. For a child has been born for us. A son has been given to us. Authority rests on his shoulders. He is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, unto us, given to us, a son, a human, a human baby, just like you, just like me. To a point. 
Mary was told, he'll bear a son. You're to name him what? Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means what? God is with us. Save his people. Emmanuel. By the way, Emmanuel is not a name. It's not a name that means something. Emmanuel is a sentence in Hebrew. With us is God. If you were to read that in Hebrew, uh, uh, Matthew is quoting Isaiah here, quoting the, the, the prophet. And if you read it in Hebrew, it literally means with us is God. It's a sentence. It's not a name. So call him by his name. Call him by the action that he is. God is with us. With us is God. The angel said to them, according to Luke, he said, Don't be afraid. I'm bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in bands of cloth, lying in a manger, lying in a hungry donkey's feed trough. Bring you good news of great joy for how many people? For all people, today in the city of David is born for you, he says, for you, a Savior. This will be the sign for you. Creator became creation. Why? To fulfill the original covenant. I know we argue all the time about old covenant, new covenant, old covenant, new covenant. We tried to tell you there's no such thing as old as obsolete, right? The covenant has never changed. He came to be with us to fulfill the covenant, simply to be with us. His desire has always been to walk with us and to talk with us, period. That is the Adamic covenant, if you will. Noahic covenant added a little more. Abrahamic covenant added a little bit more. And the covenant was passed on down through his sons to David. And then comes the fulfillment of the covenant. But it doesn't do away with the original desire. As a matter of fact, the fulfillment of the covenant being Jesus, what is he? God is with us. To walk with us and to talk with us. What he had with Adam and Eve, he wants with us. So he comes and grows legs in order to do it. The most definitive statement that God has ever made about you and me, about humanity, about fallen humanity, not about humanity of what it could be. He doesn't love us because he thinks we're going to get our act together. He doesn't love us on the other side. He doesn't say, I'll love you better when you get your act together and come here on the other side. Fallen humanity. He knew before the foundation of the world that we would fall. We've always been fallen. The most definitive statement he's made about humanity is Jesus. Period. In her book, The Desire of Ages, Ellen White has this statement. Satan's purpose is to bring about an eternal separation between God and man. But in Christ, we become more closely united to God than have if we had never fallen. More closely united to God than if we had never fallen. And if you think I have a comment on that, my comment is, wow. 
humans are now bound to God for eternity. It will never be broken. See, for God, that eternity was always is and was. For you and me, it was a point in time, right? A point in time when he came and was born and lived from day to day and then comes to the cross and comes to the resurrection. We live by linear time, as we said. But for God, this eternal separation has been eternal. It's never been any different. John 3.16 tells us that he gave his son to who? For us. A fallen human race. And as far as we can tell, Jesus is the, 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 the final form, if you will, of the incarnation. We speculated the first week in talking about this, that Michael might have been a, a form of incarnation to the angels. And then, then the next form of incarnation is to become a human. The son becomes a human. The son used to be Michael, who is like who? Who is like God. The son was, was Michael and then he becomes Jesus. This is the final form. As far as we can tell, he's going to retain the human form forever. As far as we can tell, God will be bound to humanity forever. It's the definitive statement of you and me. He adopted human form when he became that baby. Then he would curse human nature about 33 years later and hang it on that cross. And die the death that that curse brings about. Why? Because he loves us. I don't have any comment on that either. Right there it says, wow. You talk about the biblical, you talk about the historical and archaeological accuracy of the Bible. <laughs> to me, what makes the Bible what it claims to be is that no human would have come up with a plan like that. We wouldn't be able to conceive a plan like that. We wouldn't be able to come close to a plan like that. My plan would save the people that I want to save, save the people who deserve to be saved. That way, we'd all be nice and happy on this little boat we could call it the Titanic. And nobody would come up with any better plan than that. None of us would have. Not King, not Gandhi, not anybody. We don't love as he loves. Yet we're commanded to. (laughs) Thanks. Appreciate it. We can't, but he tells us to. But he tells us how to start. Receive all this as your Christmas gift every year. I mean, we're supposed to receive it how often? Every year. But Christmas, we even have the world reminding us. We even have the world reminding us that we can receive this as a Christmas gift, that we can live this again, that the baby changed and changes everything. We even have Home Depot reminding us. Maybe it's a good thing that it keeps coming earlier and earlier. Pretty soon, we'll just celebrate it all year. They won't put the Christmas decorations on clearance on the 26th. They'll just put it right back on the shelf. The baby changes everything. Nothing's ever the same. 
Because he loved us. And he saved fallen humanity simply because he loves us. And he remains human forever to continually through eternity prove that love. If there's ever an angel who, who gets fed up and wants to find out, why, what, is, what in the world, why does, why does God love these people so much? I've spent a few thousand years with them now and I don't get it. And the only explanation is to point at Jesus. There he is with arms and legs and scars. By the way, if you want to know what humanity was supposed to be, there he is. If you want to know what you and I were supposed to be, there he is. You know, I can, I can talk about being selfless all day long, all day long, but I'm not. No one isn't. The most selfless examples of humanity that we have in all of humanity, even they would admit they're not. Dr. King were here today. He would admit his selfish nature. Mother Teresa were here today. She had already admitted it. Read her diary. But if you want to know what you and I were supposed to be, look at Jesus. Gives us something to truly live for. And if there's one thing he's going to give us back, we talk about... Like I said before, we joke about, we talk about, you know, me getting my hair back and no longer having to wear these and, and so forth and so on. But if you want to know the one thing that he's going to give us back, he's going to give us back the ability to love again. Because we've proven for generation after generation after generation that we can't. And the one twinkling of an eye, bang, here's your selfless nature back. Now come to a kingdom and live forever. It goes beyond bad works and good works. It goes to the very heart of our being. It goes beyond a father loving his children. The father became the child in order to show the child what love really is. We've distorted, we've conditioned, we've ruined love. Our study in Ecclesiastes said that. As pointed out in our class. I wish you could have heard Bruce in our class. Living under the sun. We've ruined it all. We've ruined love, we've ruined grace, we've ruined mercy, we've ruined it all. That's what it means to live under the sun. That's what humanity has done to it. But the Son of Man, when He returns, man has cried out in the oldest stories of our time. Job says, He's not immortal as I am that I might answer Him, that we should come to trial together. There's no umpire between us who may lay a hand on us both. You're God and I'm not. And you don't get it. You don't understand. You don't know what it's like. I wish there was somebody who knew what it felt to be God and knew what it felt to be human. The oldest narrative in all the Bible and the man is crying out for who? For a son of man. He's crying out for Jesus. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call us, to call them brothers and sisters. But God proves his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies. A humiliating death on a cross. Dying for people who care for him how much? 
Not one bit. While we were what? While we were yet enemies. He died for his enemies. People have been his enemies all his life and never missed an opportunity to humiliate him. His entire earthly life. He played by the harshest of rules. When he came, he didn't say, I'm going to be God when I want to and I'm going to be man when I want to. He decided to become man and he decided he was going to play by our rules. This is a story when he comes back to his hometown and it says he left that place and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astounded. They said, where did this man get all this? What is the wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by him? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And aren't the, his sisters here with us? They took offense at him. They never, ever let him forget his questionable paternity. Because in another place they were saying, is this not Jesus, son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Never let him forget it. And you'll notice he doesn't all of a sudden turn into son of God right here. He doesn't switch on the son of God part in order to protect his reputation. He plays by our rules. And, and he, didn't, he, he didn't bother with, with his reputation one bit. It was a harsh game they decided to play. Isaiah tells us, for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering, acquainted with infirmity, and as one from whom others hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him of no account. Did you ever ponder that the humility that he had was actually humiliation when he lived here? That he was going to play by our rules? That's what humanity does. See, if I can humiliate you, I can feel better about myself. And we do it without even thinking. That's our nature. That's who we are. It's, by the way, it's what he came to save us from. But it's how he lived. He came to reveal God. What do we learn about God in this first Christmas? What do, you, what do we understand? What do we know? I think humility just doesn't cut it, but humility is the only word that we have. <laughs> it's all we got. There's a, I thought I had the slide, but I don't. But there's a, there's a verse in Numbers where Moses talks about himself. Uh, Numbers 12, verse 3. It's interesting. Now, the man Moses was very humble, more so than anyone else on the face of the earth. What's funny is that Moses wrote Numbers. So it's, he can't even come out and say, I was very humble. He says, the man Moses was very humble. And it sounds arrogant, okay? But up until Moses, up until Moses, who, by the way, is a precursor to the Messiah that Israel would receive, what Moses wanted Israel to know, that what made him different was that not that he was mightier than Pharaoh, is that he was more humble than Pharaoh. 
Because Pharaoh wasn't going to place himself under an Egyptian God and allow the Egyptian God to fight his fight for him. He was going to do it himself. Moses places himself in subjection to this God that he meets on Sinai and trusts him. See? So Numbers 12.3 is actually a prophecy. Up until Moses, up until Jesus, no pagan had ever used the word humble as a compliment. Which is why I think that the way, why Moses words this the way he does. That's why he doesn't say, I'm more humble than any man around. Because everybody would look and say, well, you're, you can't be our Messiah then. We don't want a humble man. Right? Look at the giants we're facing here. We don't want a humble man. But no human author had ever used humble as a compliment. Shouldn't humble God be an oxymoron? Right? But the maker of all things shrank down so small as to become an ovum, a single fertilized egg, visible by only the most powerful of microscopes. One that divides and divides until the fetus takes shape inside a poor, nervous, teenage, unwed mother. Philip Yancey points out, Father Neville Figgis writes, "Great God is great is the cry of Islam. And it's a truth that needs no supernatural being to teach them. That God is little. That's the truth Jesus taught man. That God is little is what Jesus teaches us. This God who moves armies and empires like a chessboard and pawns, who hangs planets into their systems like, like, like tennis balls, emerges in our time, emerges into our linear time in ancient Palestine as a baby who can't speak, eat solid food, or control his bladder. And depending on a teenager for shelter, for food, for love, and protection. How do rulers stride through the world today? What's the State Department protocol for welcoming a king or a queen from a foreign land? Bodyguards, fanfare, bright clothes, jewels. Yancey listed what Queen Elizabeth uh, needs when she visits the U.S. Reporters love spelling out. 4,000 pounds of luggage. Two outfits for every occasion, including a morning outfit just in case someone dies on the trip. Forty pints of plasma. Kid leather toilet seat covers. Her own hairdresser, two valets, a host of other attendants. One week's visit can easily cost $20 million. God's 33-year visit to earth begins in an animal shelter. No attendants, no midwife, no bassinet or incubator, but a feed trough. Again, more animal witnesses than human. He could have been stepped on by a mule. So what does Christmas ultimately teach us? What does the baby ultimately teach us? That we don't have anything to fear. If you think about it, he even feared fear for us. Because if there's anybody that should fear trying to come to this planet and free a human people, it's a baby, right? The baby, <laughs> I mean, we need to fear for that plan is what we need to fear for. But even he comes and experiences fear for us. We don't have anything to fear. 
See, Israel certainly did. Worship in the, in the Old Testament was dictated mostly by fear. By the way, not God's plan. Whose plan was it to, to, to worship God by fear? Israel. God invited him up the mountain. You got nothing to fear. Come on up. Come on up. It's Israel that decide to worship him by fear. You can argue whether or not God gave them what they wanted. All right. But it is what they wanted. But think about what, what, what worship looked like. What happened to the worshiper in the Old Testament when he decided to step forward and do it? Step forward and do it. You know, you've got fire, you've got hot coals, you've got all those things. What did a person blessed with a direct encounter with God expect to come away with? Scorched, glowing, half crippled from a dislocated hip? If you survived. Don't touch the mountain or what? Mishandle the Ark of the Covenant. What happens? Enter the most holy place when you're not supposed to and what? Again, not how God wanted it. Let's reiterate in case somebody clicks in the podcast at this point. Not how God wanted it. Come on up the mountain. Where are you? This is what God wants. God wants to what? Walk with us and to talk with us. You should be able to get to repeat that back to me and Pastor Walt. What did God want? To walk with us and to talk with us. Right? You can at least amen it if you're not going to say it. Okay, good, good. But so among a people who wouldn't dare pronounce or write his name, God appears as a baby in a manger. What can be less scary than a newborn with his limbs tightly wrapped up against his body by rags? In Jesus, God finds a way to finally have the relationship he always wanted, but we refused. One without fear. One that without fear, we can walk with him and talk with him. Fear doesn't work, worshiping God. Thunder at Sinai, the golden calf. It only took 10 days to go from the fear and the thunder at Sinai and God pronounced, and and Israel saying, we'll do whatever you say. Moses hangs around a little bit too long on the mountain and they make a golden calf. Fear doesn't work. Fear doesn't work at all. But that same God stands on the opposite of the brook Kidron and he looks at Jerusalem and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've wanted, how I've wanted to gather you in like a mother hen gathers in her chicks. And he weeps. That God is a God that still followed today. So, what do you think? What do we do? How do we live? That our great God actually is humble. That he practices humility. What about us? What about us? I've been sitting there, I've been observing the, the, some of the comments of Christians and, and, and everything and noting... And one thing that, that, that seems to come across to me about Christianity today is how unhumble it really is. Yeah. How we could look at an entire fallen race and say, we have something that you don't, and we think that we can actually go and save them. You know what? I wasn't saved by the church. I wasn't saved by the beautiful witnesses that God put in my life. They were beautiful witnesses, but I wasn't saved by them. I was saved by Jesus. 
The only reason that I even came about, the only reason that I ever got to the point to where I could even say the words or whatever is because he lived in my heart and convicted me of it. It wasn't pure doctrine, which, by the way, I believe we have pure doctrine. It wasn't how to interpret a certain way or look in the Bible. I was saved by Christ. You were saved by Christ. The world will be saved by Christ. And it won't until we begin to exhibit the humility that our God exhibited in saving us. He had to become humble. He be, I'm not sure that he had to become humble. I think he always was. But he, he, he demonstrates that humility for us. When are we going to? Yeah, I really, think that, I really think that the key is not more and more and more evangelism. I believe it's humility and humbleness and begin to look at people as somebody who God loves regardless of the decision that they'll ever make. We need to look at people and understand that they have worth outside of the fact that they may ever, ever come to Christ. We need to be humble enough to know that it took Home Depot to remind me of the baby this year. And then I'll complain. I'll complain about, about the commercialization. and I'll complain about all that. But, but to be humble enough to admit to you that maybe if it wasn't for the commercialization, if it wasn't for the trees and the lights and everything else, I might forget about that baby altogether. One of the foremost atheists of, of the last decade or so was a man named Christopher Hitchens. And one of the foremost Christians in the last decade or so was a man named Francis Collins. Francis Collins, as a neurosurgeon, became uh, the leader of the NIH, the National Institute of Health. <clears throat> The one thing that nobody, that a lot of people that, that Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins didn't like about him was that he was a Christian. And they always used to tease him and, and kid him about how can you be, how can you be uh, this brilliant scientist that we know you are, this brilliant doctor, and be a Christian. And over the years, the next years that he was head of the NIH, he, 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 very, uh, he welcomed the opportunity to, to talk with them and, and to debate with them. But if you looked at the debates between Hitchens and Dawkins and, and Collins and men like them, if you looked at, at, at Collins, he was so humble. He refused to debate. He refused to engage. He refused to make a comment about how they may be unintelligent for not recognizing evidence and so forth and so on. He simply, simply was just there. Hitchens lived with his cancer for a year and a half. He developed throat cancer. He died recently. An ordeal that he chronicled in regular columns for Vanity Fair magazine, he told, a lot of, he, he told of receiving hateful messages from Christians, including one who, believing mistakenly that Hitchens had throat cancer, rejoiced that he got cancer in the one part of his body he used for blasphemy. I'm sorry, he didn't have throat cancer. I think it was prostate. He received that from somebody calling themselves a Christian. Then comes the fun when he's sent to hellfire forever to be tortured and set aflame. 
Yet one of Hitchens' last columns paid tribute to Francis Francis Collins, whom he described as one of the greatest living Americans and our most selfless Christian physician. This great humanitarian is also a devotee of the work of C.S. Lewis in his book, The Language of God, has set out the case for making science compatible with faith. I know Francis too. From various public and private debates over religion, he's been kind enough to visit me in his own time and to discuss all sorts of novel treatments and even recently, even imaginable, only recently, even imaginable that he might apply to my case. Collins visited Hitchens from the time that he knew he was diagnosed and as director of the NIH was able to try and talk to him about treatments that that are now available. He got to know him and his family. Hitchens had no deathbed conversion, passed from his life, from this life, as a convinced atheist, but from one friend at least he received spiritual care, the quiet service of love. Francis Collins fulfilled the command in Hebrews, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and the rest in him. I have to be humble enough to know that we can be reminded of this in wherever we walk, and there are reminders everywhere. And every time we encounter a face, no matter who they are, no matter what they believe, God would say that our humility would allow us to understand and know that I am as lost as anybody without him. And it's a whole lot easier, a whole lot easier to dispense doctrine than it is to dispense grace. But grace is the one thing, the only thing that matters and and that we can do. See, the baby didn't come and die because he knew that everybody would get the story and understand it and make a decision to follow him. Yet he came. He just came to give the opportunity. He came to give everybody the opportunity. You and I have had the grace of God to be able to accept it, or at least I hope you have. If you haven't, don't let this Christmas season go one minute longer without accepting what God has done for you today. Let the stores remind you. Let the the scenes in front yards remind you. Let them all remind you. It's the baby again. And upon him rests everlasting peace. And that we could just give a little of the grace that we've been given. And we'll live the season the way it's supposed to be lived. Merry Christmas again, everybody. Thank you. Our, our Next week will be our Christmas program. And uh, I don't know, it's, it's not the way that we ultimately usher in the season, but here at Grace Point, it's the way that we ultimately celebrate it. So we're looking forward to being with you again next week. Let's pray.